Good morning. Yeah, so this is it. We're going to um, complete our little study of the Sermon on the Mount today. Uh, be good actually to read through the whole thing, but we won't do that. We will read the last six verses. So if you have your Bibles or we have it on the overhead, uh, you could turn to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the seventh chapter. Verses 24 through 29. Jesus says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain descended, the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So when we began our journey through this sermon a number of months ago, in the beginning of chapter 5, we talked about how this was early in the ministry of Jesus as he went about Galilee proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God and healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases His fame spread and the crowds grew and grew and grew. And and at, at this point, great multitudes began to follow him. And in the first verse of uh, Matthew chapter 5, we read that, and seeing these multitudes, seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, really more of a, of a hillside with a gentle slope, probably grassy slope. And when he had sat down, his disciples gathered around him. And then Matthew says, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, that's how the sermon begins. And at that moment, something new in the history of the world happened. The writer of Hebrews opens his epistle about that when he writes, uh, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoken times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds. So there had been lots of talk about God. We had heard a lot about God, including through his own prophets uh, in the Old Testament. But something new was happening that day on that hillside. God with us, the eternal word clothed in human flesh, opened his mouth, his human mouth, which he now had, and spoke to us. Uh, And with his first words, he blessed us, not once, but again and again and again. Nine blessings. He spoke to a harried people who had lived all their lives under a curse, and he brought them blessing after blessing, like the Apostle John says in his gospel, and of his fullness, 
have we all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace he poured out on these people. And having blessed them, he called his little band of very undistinguished disciples the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And then began to describe what being light looks like in the real world. As he described a new righteousness, a new kind of righteousness, one that exceeds, that goes beyond the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees that they knew. And he gave them examples of how the new righteousness looked in real life in relation to anger and adultery and honesty and how to relate to enemies. Then he showed how different religious duties like almsgiving and prayer and fasting looked like in this new way, this new way to be human, right? And how it affected our attitude toward our possessions because the situation has changed now. We do things differently. Most radically of all, he opened his mouth and taught us something we had never known but desperately needed to know. He taught us that God is our Father. And so we must love even our enemies because because God does and we're his children. That we must become perfect because we're to become like our Father. And and that we can be bold to pray for our Father knows our needs and knows how to give good things to his children. And we can stop worrying. If we can believe what Jesus is telling us, we can walk through life free from fear. Our Father can be trusted to clothe us, to feed us, to care for us. He opened his mouth and taught us and Because we're in danger, he warned us. Warned us of the dangers of being salt that has lost its flavor. The danger of holding on to anger, of withholding forgiveness. The dangers of lustful looks and of eyes turned to darkness that can fill your whole life with darkness. And as he began his serving with blessings, he ended it in chapter 7 with this series of warnings. We spent a few sermons considering his warnings about false roads and false prophets and false professions of faith. And now he closes with one final warning. And let's just look at that again to get it down. He says, therefore, that is in the light of everything I've just been saying to you, Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I'll liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish person who built his house on the sand. And the rains descended, the floods came, And the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. So the preceding warning in verses 21 through 23 was about those who say but don't do. Many will say to me in that day. Now Jesus is 
concluding his sermon by warning us not to be those who hear but don't do. We've heard the sermon. What, what use shall we make of this Sermon on the Mount? What should our response be? See, Jesus will not allow us to go away and have conferences about it, retreats about it, publish books interpreting it, choose our favorite sayings, maybe put them on a bumper sticker, skip the hard parts. See, we've heard Jesus speak now. Our situation has changed. You know, we worry about those who have never heard. Uh, that question's raised. What about those who haven't heard? But that's not us. That's no longer us. The question for us is, what will we do with what we have heard? See, there are two basic responses to hearing the word of God. The first is what... Uh, It's what God told Ezekiel about how the children of Israel were hearing him. Because Ezekiel had become a very popular speaker by this time. And in Ezekiel 33, God said to him, As for you, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you beside the walls and in the doors of the houses. And they speak to one another, everyone saying to his brother, Please come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. So it was like a thing to go and hear Ezekiel. This guy, you got to hear this guy. He's good. Let's go hear the word of the Lord. God says, so they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth, they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument where they hear your words and they do not do them. You see that? Uh, they hear your talk and they say, wow, that was great. That was, a, that was a very convicting sermon. I love those really convicting sermons. And then they walk out the door and nothing, nothing changes. They like it, same way they like someone who's really does a great performance, you know. They, they uh, hear the music, they say, oh, that's really great. But it doesn't affect them. It's interesting, God says, Ezekiel, that's what I see happening here. Now, that's discouraging for a preacher. I'm no Ezekiel, but I, I can remember one time when I was... <laughs> teaching a Sunday school class. and uh, Now, the week before, I had told a funny story. I thought it was funny. Uh, it was a baseball story. It actually was about the 1988 World Series. But at that time, it was just a few years before, instead of 39 years ago. But anyway... Um, but anyway, the next week, I was teaching something... Something pretty, you know, important. I mean, to me, it's important. And I was very passionate. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm pushing for this dramatic conclusion. And everyone's going to be motivated to go out and serve the Lord, you know. And I wrapped it up in dramatic fashion. And uh, someone, I said, are there any questions? Because this was a Sunday school class. 
and someone stuck up their hand. So I'm a little, okay, you know, I'm connecting. I'm connecting here. Someone stuck up their hand and said, hey, Vince, could you tell that story again that you told last week? That's not an encouragement to... Now, there are some things I'm going to say up here that would be just as well to walk out the door and forget. But we're talking about the, we're hearing the word of the Lord. That's one way to receive it. Maybe the most common way to receive it. And then there's this other way that God uh, tells about to the prophet Isaiah right at the end of his prophecy in the last chapter of Isaiah. Um, in the first verse of that chapter, he had talked about creating everything, the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 2, he says, For all those things my hand is made, and all those things came to be, he says the Lord, but on this one will I look. Think about that. I've, I've made everything that exists, but I'll look on this one, on him who is a poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. That's the proper response when we hear God's word. It ought to start by sending a chill down our spine, you know. And we ought to always approach the word of God on our knees. Um, not like uh, listening to a pleasant piece of music. So we've heard Jesus' words. The question is... Uh, what is our response? So Jesus tells this story about two builders making two houses. So notice a few things about, about them. They, they both knew they needed shelter. They needed a roof over their heads, a place they could feel safe. And both were able to finish their houses. The only difference between the wise man and the fool is what they were building their house on. One on the rock and the other on sand. In Luke's version, the wise man dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. I like that. He dug deep. He did the prep work. And he got his house anchored in bedrock, right? The other on the sand. The other built his house on sand, which is kind of a foolish thing on the face of it, right? I mean, uh, sand has some good uses. It's kind of a silly place to anchor a house, though. In Luke's version, the foolish man built without a foundation at all. Built a house without a foundation, which is much the same thing. Jesus is asking us to consider what is the foundation of our lives? What are we building them on? See, uh, What's the bedrock for us? Is it our talents, our possessions, or relationships, or accomplishments, or doing good things, even religious things? Don't we in our life sometimes feel the ground shifting under us and wonder what in the world we're doing here? Jesus claims that the only sure foundation is just this, to listen to him and to do what he tells you, and that all other ground is shifting sand. So again, 
both men in the story hear what Jesus said. You notice that. They both, they both have heard. They heard the same words. The foolish man's problem is not ignorance. Jesus says he hears these sayings of mine. He's churched. He knows what Jesus said. He probably believes what Jesus says. The only difference is he doesn't do it. But knowing the truth and not being changed by it will do you no good. Knowledge without obedience is useless in the end. Jesus says that later on, on, uh, on the night that he was betrayed in that last supper when he, when he got on his knees and wrapped a towel around him and washed his disciples' feet. And he said, do you understand what I just did? And in John thirteen seventeen, if you know these things, then blessed are you if you do them. Then say, blessed are you because I said them. Or blessed are you, period. It's, there's a condition, right? You've heard these things. Now, blessed are you. If, if you know them, blessed are you if you do them. It's kind of like, you know, old James who can be a bit annoying by saying things like this, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So if we come to church and hear the words again and again and even go to Bible studies or even teach Bible studies, and even if we should understand all the mysteries of God and know the whole Bible by heart, if we don't do what Jesus tells us, we're foolish. We're, we're fools. Raising a magnificent structure on the sand. And the word that should have brought us life may one day declare us dead. And the truth that should have set us free may turn to condemn us. So Thomas Akempis, uh, a few centuries ago, prayed that he not prove Pray that he might not, in the end, prove to be a mere hearer of the word. Uh, He wrote this, Lest I die and prove unfruitful, if I be only warned outwardly and not inflamed within, lest it turn to my condemnation, the word heard and not fulfilled, known and not loved, believed and not observed. So, We have the two builders and the two buildings and the differences between them. And then secondly, Jesus talks about the storm. Uh, Let me just give you that again. First, the wise man's house in verse 25. The rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. And then the foolish man's house in verse 27, and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. You see, you'd never know the difference between these two houses if it wasn't for the storm. The house on the sand would do nicely except for the storm. The outward appearance The house of the foolish man might look every bit as good as the house of the wise. Maybe better. It may appear strong and fine. The only difference in the houses, according to the story, is their foundation. And that is hidden from the eyes of men. No one else can see it. 
you could convince most folks that you've built a perfectly good house. Nice looking house, nice roof, nice windows, brick siding. Like it. Looks good. That is, until the storm comes. Both houses look fine on a quiet, sunny day. It's the storm that reveals what the house is, reveals what it has been all along. So what is the storm? What does Jesus mean by the rain and the winds and the floods? Notice first it's a great storm. We're not talking about a gentle rain. A storm that will bring a house down if it's not well built. And secondly, notice it's identical for both houses. If you read it, it's word for word identical. If you read Greek, it's still word for word identical. So the storm's the same for both. And finally, it is coming. You won't find any if in the passage. There's no if about it in Jesus' story. Now, it seems to me there are two storms coming, two that we can identify. Pretty obviously, one would be the storms of this life and then the, the final storm that's to come. The storms of this life, you know, persecution, troubles, loneliness, poverty, sickness, pain, the deaths of those we love, and finally our own death. And you you can't opt out. There's a... This is put very succinctly in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 8, verse 8, where the preacher says, no one has power in the day of death. There is no discharge in that war. I mean, life is a battlefield, and I'm sorry, folks, there's no discharge in that war. No one gets out of here alive. These, these things, these things that come to us are bound to come Uh, as Job said long ago, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. That's one verse in the Bible that requires no faith at all to believe. Just open your eyes. So trouble's coming. The question is, what happens to us when they come? See? Remember the stony ground in the parable of the sower? You know, there were... uh, Four different kinds of ground, right? The roadside, the stony ground, the thorny ground, and the good soil. And, and Jesus said that in the stony ground, the seed shot up quickly, but it had no depth of earth. There was no depth of earth. So, so the, it couldn't drop deep roots. It was shallow. And, and when he explained the... Uh, parable later to his disciples he said of those folks he who received the seed on stony places this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy yet he has no root in himself but endures only for a while for when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word he immediately stumbles but he looks okay until then I mean the plant that grows up looks just fine like the other plant you you can't see that there's There's no root. There's no depth. All along they had no root. The troubles revealed the fact. The troubles that come to us test the structure we've erected 
and show what it was all along. So if I can quote Thomas Akempis one more time, occasions of adversity best discover how great virtue or strength each one has. For occasions do not make a man frail. They reveal what he is. Troubles and trials, well, they're an education, right? They're an education about us. They strip off the mass. They reveal what is. The the foolish man's house lacked a foundation all along. The storm simply revealed the truth. It may do that for us. It It may reveal what we are to ourselves as well. It may, uh, it may teach us about ourselves, maybe things we didn't want to know. But really, if our lives are built on sand, on nothing, the sooner we find out, the better. Sometimes the only way to fix a house is to knock it down and start over with a new foundation. Sometimes God has to knock us flat in order to build us up. Sometimes he has to turn us over and empty us before he can fill us. And this is a great mercy. If he does this for us, this is of his mercy. Because there's another storm coming. Now remember, the whole context of these last warnings of Jesus is the day of judgment. Many will say to me, in that day, there's a storm coming. A day approaches when the elements themselves will melt in a fervent heat so that the works of darkness will be destroyed forever. A fire so hot that only that which can last forever will not be consumed. And you'll be there. You will be there. And that's going to finally reveal what your life was all the time being built on. God once spoke in judgment on Mount Sinai. Remember when the children of Israel gathered there in the wilderness? He spoke to them in fire and blackness and tempest and his voice shook the earth. Think about that. The voice, the audible voice of God then shook the earth. And the writer of Hebrews says this, whose voice then at Mount Sinai shook the earth But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. You see, God is going to speak once more in judgment. And this time his voice will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. And everything that can be shaken will be shaken. And only those things that cannot be shaken will remain. There's a storm coming. And the sky itself will roll up like a scroll. And every mountain and island will be moved out of its place. And what will become of us? What will become of us on that day? If our house is built on the rock... If our lives are founded on Jesus Christ, though heaven and earth will flee away from the face of him who sits on the throne, that house will stand. If not, well, it'll be too late for remodeling then.
verses 28 through 29. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So you've got to picture this scene. Jesus is, has finished the sermon. Uh, the, the winds, the rains, and the floods blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And then silence. The sermon had ended. Jesus had finished his sayings. And I think a, a great hush fell over that multitude. The people were stunned. They were dumbfounded. They were astonished with the teaching and with the teacher. Because it says, For he taught them as one having authority. If the teaching was astonishing, the teacher was more so. And I want to close this talk this morning and this series by just noticing how everywhere in this Sermon on the Mount, we're confronted with the speaker himself. Who is he? Who is it that is talking to us? He says things that would be outrageous if anyone else in the world said them. I mean, think about this. He dispenses blessings. He calmly declares who owns God's kingdom. Who will inherit the earth? Who will be rewarded in heaven? Who will see God? As if the authority to dole out these honors belonged to him alone. He says your reward in heaven will be great if you suffer for my sake. If you suffer for my sake, your reward in heaven will be great, like the prophets of old who suffered for God. And he claims to fulfill the law and the prophets. To fulfill the law and the prophets. That is the Bible, their whole Bible. He's saying, you know that whole Bible you've been studying all your life? Oh, that's about me. That's all about me. And he takes authority over the law and the prophets. He says, you've heard that it was said by those of old. Who was that? Moses. Moses said, well, you heard Moses said, you know, you shall not kill. That's that's pretty good. But I say to you, I mean, even the very prophets of God themselves would always say, thus saith the Lord. Jesus never says that. What does he say? He says, verily, verily, I say to you. And then he says things in passing like, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, you know, as if he's exempt. You know, even you evil people know how to do some things right. And we just sit there and say, yeah, yeah. Most outrageously, he speaks of the final judgment of the world. And first of all, he claims to be the judge. He's talking about doomsday, the final judgment. And he says, on that day, many will say to me, and I will declare to them, I will mete out the judgments. And he says that everything that day will hang on whether we know him. Right? The whole thing was about, I knew you, I didn't know you. Who is this guy? 
and that the ultimate disaster is to lose him. What, what's the, the final uh, ultimate disaster, word of doom? Depart from me. Depart from me. If I said to you, depart from me, that would not be an ultimate disaster, you know. Go home and have your lunch, take a nap. That's what I'm going to do. So what? But, but it's like everything in time and eternity seems to hang on what he says to you in that day. So what's the point? You know, many have tried to recognize Jesus as a teacher, but deny that he is the Lord. I mean, that's the popular way to handle, you know, what are we going to do about this Jesus? Oh, I really like Jesus. Oh, that golden rule, I really like that. He was a great teacher. Didn't he go around teaching peace and love and stuff like that? And, and, and it's all that rigid dogma the church added later, I can't buy. All, all those, you know, Paul and those apostles and then the Catholic church, they ruined everything. And uh, I really like Jesus. Now, let me say, first of all, if Jesus was just a great teacher, that, does, that, that doesn't do me any good. That doesn't answer my condition. The world was not hanging on a precipice, breathlessly waiting to hear, have another teacher, to have someone tell them more stuff to do. I mean, his teaching is amazing. But, but if Jesus is just a teacher, that's not going to save me. And anyway, the people who say that, they don't know what they're saying. The sermon is about Jesus. With almost every line he's asking us, as he later asked his disciples, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Everything depends on that. He leaves no room, as C.S. Lewis once wrote, for any patronizing nonsense about what a great teacher he was. I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets, he said. I have come. I've come. What are you going to do about me? See, it all hangs on that. He had finished these sayings, but in the coming months he would keep telling them who he was in astonishing words and mighty deeds and finally through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead three days later. But on this day, the sermon was over. The people were astonished. Why? What had just happened? What had just happened? Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it this way. The Son of God had spoken. He had taken the judgment of the world into his hands. I mean... The story of history had turned a new page. Jesus had spoken. His disciples stood about him. In a few years, their enemies would testify that they had turned the world upside down. Let's close in prayer, and then uh, uh, the prayer team will be coming up, and we'll sing a song and then be dismissed. 
Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you, Lord, uh, that uh, you didn't remain silent. Um, we could never know you unless you had spoken. You spoke to us in various ways, in diverse places. You spoke to us through the prophets of old. We thank you that in these last days, you've spoken to us by your own dear Son, through whom you made the world. Father, help us to hear him, and may your word prove fruitful in our lives and change our hearts and issue forth in uh, good deeds and change lives in the fruit of the Spirit. Lord, I thank you for each one here this morning and just ask that your good hand of blessing would rest on each one, that you would encourage their hearts, strengthen them, keep them safe from every evil thing this day and this week. And now, Father, uh, uh, receive our worship. Make our words of praise acceptable in your sight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.